Thank you for listening to The Rest is History. For bonus episodes, early access, ad-free listening, and access to our chat community, sign up at restishistorypod.com. That's restishistorypod.com. Hello, welcome to The Rest is History. We are talking the fall of the Soviet Union. Uh, And in yesterday's episode, Dominic, we reached 1987, the 70th anniversary of the Russian Revolution. And how how are things basically on the ground in the USSR at this point? How is the anniversary being marked? Is there a sense of optimism, of enthusiasm, or just kind of disinterest? Or what's the mood? So they're not going well. So Gorbachev is, um, I mean, this is such an immensely complicated story. Uh, And I'm trying to sort of simplify it as much as possible. So Gorbachev is slightly torn between two different camps. He has the the reformers who want him to go further faster. And he has... And and the leading reformer, is is this yet, is Boris Yeltsin, has he taken on that mantle by this point? Should we talk about him? We can introduce Boris Yeltsin now. Now we're going to do Boris Yeltsin in the 1990s in a subsequent podcast because it's such a complicated and, and huge story. And this is an absolutely fascinating thing because the relationship between these two men, I mean, this really is an example of individuals mattering in history, Tom, because uh, I think the relationship <laughs> between... It's so these... ironic, isn't it, in the context, it of, is, in the context of the Soviet Union? Um, the relationship between these two men and the way they don't get along is so crucial to this story. Had they got along, the Soviet Union might well still exist. And the war wow, in Ukraine would a, not that's have been well, so he's br- he's brought in by Gorbachev to be basically what the kind of to run Moscow. Moscow. Exactly, he's been in a place called Sverdlovsk, which is now which well, it was called Sverdlovsk at the time, but it's Ekaterinburg. So it's the place so where, where, the where the, yes, yeah, yeah, in the, where the Romanovs were executed in the um, uh, in the Urals. Now, Yeltsin is a very different character from Gorbachev. Gorbachev is more idealistic and a kind of reader and all that sort of stuff, and a committee man, a man who loves tinkering with constitutions. Yeltsin is, as we all know, he's ebullient. He's he's a populist. He likes a drink. He's he's great at glad handing the crowd. He can be a bit of a clab. He can be a bully. Um, he's this larger than life kind of imp- incredibly impulsive figure. Yeltsin wants them to go faster. In 1987, um, so actually, round about the time they're celebrating the anniversary of the October Revolution, Yeltsin says, "I've had enough." He's been attacked. He's very sort of sensitive, Yeltsin. So he's been attacked by hardliners, and he becomes the first person ever to resign from the Politburo. Mm-hmm. And um, Gorbachev is absolutely outraged by this, thinks this is terrible. Uh, and there's this sort of campaign against Yeltsin. Yeltsin, and this is not a story that's lost people in the West, I think, as familiar with this, they should be. Yeltsin tries to kill himself by stabbing himself in the chest with some scissors. Um, he's taken to hospital. And basically, when he's in hospital, being pumped full of drugs... Uh, because people say he's gone mad and had a nervous breakdown. Uh, Gorbachev says, you have to come to a, a party meeting, a Moscow party meeting, to be ritually humiliated. Um, this is so Dostoevsky, isn't and, it? And he is. I mean, they take, they pump him full of drugs. He comes out of the hospital, and he has to sit there while everybody else says, Boris Nikolaevich, you know, you're a, you're a capitalist running dog, or whatever they're saying. And um, he has to take it, and he never forgives Gorbachev. It's like the brothers Karamazov or something. It is. It is. And he's determined, of course, to get his revenge. And that plays such a big part. Yeltsin feels completely and utterly humiliated. So So he's out of the Politburo. Yeah. But he's not being kicked out of politics. So so he's still lurking around. Yes, exactly. He's still in the Communist Party. He's still sort of drifting around in, in, um, 
in in political life. Now, the economic reforms are not going well at all. So you get the queues. They've always been queues, but they're getting longer and longer. There are shortages in the shops. Um, there's also more and more problems in the other republics, kind of demonstrations and all this sort of stuff. And Dominic, is this both with Perestroika, so the yeah. reorganization and Glasnost opening, is this because Gorbachev by 87, 88 is essentially he's reached a, a kind of halfway house where he doesn't have the benefits of either Exactly, Tom. Exactly. I mean, how often have you seen this with kind of Roman emperors or with kings or medieval kings that they, you have to choose. And and Gorbachev thinks I have to keep my sort of foot in both camps. He also, to his credit in some ways, he doesn't believe in violence. I mean, he he virtually, he very rarely, there are examples in Georgia and most famously in Lithuania, where he uses troops to kind of repress uprisings. But by and large, he doesn't like doing it. And there are some historians, I mentioned Vladislav Zubok, who basically imply if he'd been tougher, more ruthless, if he'd accumulated more power instead of giving it away, and he'd been quicker to use the sort of forces of so law and order. he didn't do it, but he should have done it. Well, that's how yes. a a leading yes. historian. That's, right. the, that's uh, me about, uh, the he of the should power. have been more Richard III. <laughs> yeah. yeah. But what Gorbachev does is he's been blocked and he says, well, the way to do it is to have even more democracy. So he has this massive thing called the Congress of People's Deputies, which he launches the plans for right. in the summer of 88. Is this akin to Charles I summoning a parliament back after you know, <laughs> the, the, the years of personal rule or Louis XVI summoning um, people to... Yeah, to, the States General. The, the States General to... Yeah. It has a bit of that, I suppose. The, I mean, the Congress of People's Deputies is absolutely enormous. They're going to have like 2,000, I think it's 2,250 members. Um, and from that, that will choose a Supreme Soviet and he will also be personally elected for the first time as president, not as general secretary. So it's a way of kind of bypassing the party. It is, but but it's properly democratic, right? I mean, there's a, a proper democratic element in a system that hasn't had a democratic element like that for exactly. a very, very long time. So dissidents time. are elected. There are kind of nationalist figures from the Baltic states. There are people like Andrei Sakharov, the dissident scientist, very famous kind of figure in the West at this point. And there's Yeltsin. And there's Yeltsin, exactly. So. And and but Tom, what happens is it's also on telly, it's oh, on goodness. TV, and this is the first time this has ever happened. And the BBC did a brilliant documentary about this many years ago. I I, I can't for the life of me remember what it's called. Um, and you can only see it on sort of very obscure websites because it's basically it was a brilliant kind of five. If you like TV series about committees, this is the one for you, <laughs> right? Um, so it's a sort of documentary, and um, they have all the sort of the footage, and it's basically people are you know people arguing. On, on platforms, people standing up on the podium and saying, you know, we don't have enough food or this is a shambles. Boris is right about this. The general secretary is right about that. People I mean, it is never, 1789, isn't it? I people mean, never there, did there that. There is an element of yeah, that. Yeah, there is. I think there probably is. People never did that. In the, and it contributes to this sense of, I think for a lot of Soviet citizens, just confusion. You know, what's going on? People arguing. Some people are delighted by the openness, but a lot of people are just confused by it. And of course, what... What makes it more toxic is that it's against the background of this, you know, the system now has broken, the interfering with the economic system has contributed to a situation where in 1989, in most parts of Russia, you now actually have meat rationing. There is no sugar. The, 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 the factories, the fields and the collectives, they're, they're no longer supplying the shops in the cities with what they need. But against that, by this point, you can read the Gulag Archipelago, can you not? 
you can indeed. Yeah, you so can. This is the great yeah, but a lot of dissident work by Solzhenitsyn. By Solzhenitsyn. But of course, a lot of people don't. This is the thing with... with and um, of course they don't want to read it. I mean, you'd rather have a, have a steak or something. Yeah, they'd rather have some meat. But also, Tom, a lot of people, if you've been brought up to think one way all this time, and then you're suddenly told, well, what you thought was a lie... You know, I mean, there's a very famous article published in 1988, which causes a huge hullabaloo by a woman called Nina Andreeva, um, very well known to kind of Soviet historians, where she basically says, stop attacking Stalin. You because know, it's stop, Stalin, right? So you've said lying about our history, this kind of, you know, these wokists tearing down statues. <laughs> yes, yes, <laughs> yes. Because you said that uh, for Gorbachev, it's all about Lenin. Yeah. And so therefore, Stalin is cast as Stalin essentially the baddie, the guy, the guy yeah. who had come in and ruined it. Uh you know, real communism hasn't been tried. That, that this argument. idea that, you know, what we've been living has been a bit of a lie and we've taken a wrong turn and we need to... A lot of people are just really... They're offended and upset and disturbed by that. They don't want yeah. to hear it. And, and yeah. of course, it's easier to hear that when you can have some sugar. If there's no tea, yeah. no milk... I mean, what is it? Uh, 1989, 1990. In, in Moscow that winter, there is no milk, no tea, no coffee, no soap. Meat is rationed. You need to get to the shop at kind of when it opens. All of this. And against that background, people think, well, this is all going horribly wrong. So that's why, by the way, when the, the Berlin Wall falls and the Eastern Europe, why there's so little Russian reaction. Partly because Gorbachev doesn't believe in using force. It's partly because he's idealistic and he thinks, well, they'll stay in the socialist camp because it's obviously a nicer kind of kinder, more touchy-feely camp than the capitalist West. It's also because he and the others are so absorbed with their own colossal colossal problems and where is putin so putin is still in dresden putin's famously in dresden uh when um uh he burns his files supposedly when the berlin wall falls he says to somebody um you know we need to do something and the guy says well we can't do anything without orders from moscow and he says um some line what is it he says uh moscow is silent or something like moscow says nothing you know and, and for putin he later on says of um he says supposedly after he becomes president he says to some of his men russian history has produced two really bad incompetent leaders they were nicholas ii and mikhail sergeyevich gorbachev because they were weak they were weaklings whereas his and, two great heroes are, are peter the great and stalin yeah well i mean that tells you what mm. you need to know mm. basically don't rent your house out to vladimir putin as we discovered <laughs> in our parties podcast because he'd smash it up as like he's smashing up ukraine right so we're into 1990 now, um, Tom. So the Warsaw Pact basically has drifted off. Has drifted off. Russia is moving towards this. The Soviet Union is moving towards this kind of multi-party politics. Industry is in a state of collapse. A lot of Gorbachev's sort of more reform-minded allies have deserted him because they think he's not going fast enough. But crucially, what's happening now is that the party elites and the people who run the, the, the state enterprises in the different republics are now beginning to think, you know, I don't want Gorbachev in a sort of shambolic interference in my affairs, and maybe I should be riding the tiger of kind of nationalism. So you start to see, I mean, obviously, you get the upsurge of nationalism in the Baltic states because they remember you know, that they were basically snatched by Stalin and they want their freedom. But other in other republics now, the nationalism is becoming more and more of a thing. And, and also I, within Russia itself. And also, well, this is the fascinating thing. Boris Yeltsin has become the, becomes in the, um, uh, the spring of 1990, he becomes the elected leader of Russia. 
So Russia is 50 plus percent of the Soviet population. And like a lot of these republics, they're starting to declare their own sovereignty. They're saying, well, we are actually sovereign. We're not just kind of provinces of a Soviet system. We have our own, you know, our own personality, our own kind of legal, we're legal entities in our own right. So Yeltsin, basically reformer, he's capitalizing on people's just frustration at the queues and stuff and their frustration with corruption and all these kinds of things. Yeltsin basically establishes Russia as a, as a counterweight to the Soviet Union. So for the, for the first time, you get the sense, I think, 1990, 1991, of almost kind of parallel, parallel governments. They're competing so, for advisors. They can have different economic programs, all of this kind of stuff. And there's a lightning rod for that, isn't there, in, um, uh, in Vilnius? Yeah. So Vilnius is when he does use violence. That's the, the exception. Gorbachev does. Gorbachev does. So the, and, and Yeltsin opposes it. And Yeltsin basically says to the Russian troops in the Baltic states, don't use violence. Yeah, so I think Yeltsin is much more of a kind of let them go. Um, Gorbachev um, is torn. He he believes in the Soviet Union. Um, he doesn't want to see anybody, anybody leave the Soviet Union. He hates violence, but he's persuaded to use troops against the TV station of Vilnius, and they kill 15 people. Um, and it's against that kind of background. So you get So you've got economic meltdown. You have... A sort of loss of political authority. You have the sort of the public bewildered and stuff that that um, Gorbachev says. Well, listen. I mean, I've, I, he's messed around with the constitution so much already, um, but he says, uh, you know, a new change. We're going to have a new union treaty. So, replacing kind of 1922, um, which we talked about in our 1922 podcast at the beginning of the year, we're going to have a new union treaty, and that'll be signed in August. All the republics will sign it, and it's basically signing up to a new model. More slightly more decentralized model of the Soviet Union, kind of it's like we're reaffirming our vows, basically. Mm-hmm. Um, now that's against the background. In that that summer, there is a total kind of collapse in the in the economy. So industry collapses by eighteen percent, agriculture by seventeen percent. They're running a massive deficit now. They can't import, afford to import consumer goods. At that point, there is a, a, a road not taken, um, which you sometimes hear talk about in in the West. So. There is talk in the summer of 1991 of George Bush Sr.'s administration intervening with a kind of Marshall Plan for the Soviet Union. And I think there is a case that this is the a great what if. Because um, there's a so guy... what called, would have happened? Well, there's a guy called Grigory Levlinsky, who's a Russian reformer, and he cooks up a scheme with a Harvard academic called Graham Allison. And that's basically to lend the Soviet Union billions, of, or to give the Soviet Union billions of dollars um, and establish them as a partner, so that Gorbachev to, to basically bail Gorbachev out. And Bush says no, it, um, Congress won't back it. We're not in the business of flushing money down the drain, which is what will happen. You know, the Soviet Union is a communist country. What are we doing? All this kind of stuff. They don't do it. What would have happened? Who can say, Tom? I mean, maybe I, I think Gorbachev had lost so much political authority by that point already that actually that would have been money down the drain, brutally. Yeah. Um, certainly wouldn't have said, I don't think it would have saved Gorbachev. Probably wouldn't, might not have saved the Soviet Union either. But it might have cushioned Russia's transition to democracy. Okay, let's take a quick break there. Uh, and we will see you after some ads or not after some ads. If you are members of our The Rest is History Club, whatever, in whatever format you're listening, we will be back with you very soon. Hi. 
I'm Anthony Scaramucci, former White House Director of Communications and Wall Street financier. And I'm Katty Kay, U.S. Special Correspondent for BBC Studios. I've been covering American politics for almost three decades. Welcome to The Rest is Politics U.S., brought to you by Goalhanger. Go on, tell us, were those donations you made, like Obama in 2008, was that idealism? Were you hoping to get something out of these campaigns that would serve your own business interests, for example? So I think this will either make this podcast incredibly successful, Caddy, or people <laughs> will be horrified and they'll shut it off right now because I'm going to be very real with you. The Obama donation, I had gone to law school with President Obama. We were not classmates. I was a few years ahead of him. It was 2007. It was then Senator Obama. I had a check in my breast pocket. I went over to the senator. I said, Senator, I said, you and I didn't really know each other in law school, but I'm about to hand you a big check. Can I lie to my friends and tell them that you and I knew each other in law school? (laughs) Well, Obama looks at me, had the best smile in American politics since Jack Kennedy. Forever. Yeah. He lights up. He looks at me and says, I'll tell you what, if you double the amount of the check, we'll take it back to Hawaii. Okay. And I looked at him. I said, you're done. I had another check in my pocket. I ripped it up. I doubled the amount of the check. And I'm going to tell you right now, I've been to more White House Christmas parties during the Obama administration than the Trump administration. In this pivotal year for the United States, democracy and world affairs, Britain's biggest podcast, The Rest is Politics, is launching stateside. Uncovering secrets from inside the Biden and Trump inner circles and how they shape the world's most important economy, but also the global economy, too. New episodes are released every Friday morning. Just search The Rest is Politics U.S. wherever you get your podcasts. Hello, welcome back to The Rest is History. Gorbachev is trying, struggling to keep the Soviet Union together. Does Yeltsin have a feeling it would be better for Russia to get rid of all these kind of various deadbeats as he sees them, these appendages to Mother Russia? Is that his attitude? Some people may think, listening to this, may think, gosh, this has got a bit of kind of a United Kingdom um sort of arguments about devolution and and uh scottish or welsh independence kind of vibe to it um because definitely there are people now in russia for the first time who are sort of saying do we need all these islamic republics in central asia you know they're just the problem though is that 25 million russian speakers live outside russia i mean that's the context for the world we're living in now that um it's a bit like you know germany um We'll get into this in the next podcast about the Weimar Republic parallels, but that is a problem. Uh, But Yeltsin is – I think Yeltsin – the sense I get from a lot of the books on this is that Yeltsin is completely fixated on his rivalry with Gorbachev, and he's not thinking kind of particularly strategically about Russia's future in the next 20 or 30 years. He's thinking, how can I establish myself as the the sort of primus inter pares instead of of Gorbachev? Dominic, it's not just Gorbachev against Yeltsin, is it? Because there are also, lurking in the background, communist hardliners. Yeah. And in August 1991, they launch basically an incredibly incompetent coup. But I I remember uh, walking through London and seeing a kind of newspaper billboard saying coup in Moscow and thinking, oh, God. Yeah. Um, Again, because a bit like the headlines at the moment, um, this was a headline that could have come from an alternative reality novel in which, uh, you know, the world gets blown up or something. So 
being very nervous. I'm a bit younger than you. My my mum woke me up to tell me the news, um, sort of first thing in the morning. So that was uh, Gorbachev being arrested in his dacha, wasn't it? Yeah, he'd gone. Well, he'd gone to Foros in the Crimea where he went on holiday, and um, one day, so it's two days actually before they they sign, they're going to sign the union, new union treaty, and the hardliners think this will give away so much power forever and we'll never get it back. So they cut off his telephones. They pitch up. They they kind of basically want him to resign. He doesn't want to do it. They form a state emergency committee. As you say, it's a complete shambles. They don't arrest Yeltsin. They don't take control of communications. They don't can take control of the Russian streets. And Yeltsin has his moment in history. I mean, they've handed it to him on a platter, and he seizes it with this. Because we said before he was in it's a bullion populist character. I mean, anyone who lived through this will remember those incredible scenes. You know, Yeltsin gets on a tank. He, he commandeers a tank. There's amazing photos. The tank driver's got his head in his hands because you know he's basically been humiliated. Yeltsin has seized his tank. There's a great crowd around him. He reads a proclamation in which he says, "You know, this is a coup of reactionaries and all this." Um, he 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 takes possession of the Russian par- the Russian Parliament building, not the Soviet, not the building of the you know the of, of the, and the Kremlin, but a building called the White House. Ironically, the Russian yes. Parliament. <laughs> Um, and and for a couple of days, it looks like the coup plotters are going to storm the White House and kill Yeltsin, but they n- don't have the guts. They're all absolutely hammered uh, or shaking or just sort of sweating and gibbering in their various offices. Um, they don't have a yeah, plan. They don't have heavy uniforms. And, yeah. yeah that, <laughs> well, they're, they're actually, if you look at the, the footage, I always remember the footage. The, the leader was a guy called Gennady Yanayev. And he was shaking when he read, the, well, he was the front man. He wasn't the leader. He, he was shaking when he read his proclamation. And they're all wearing the most terrible suits. I mean, mm. those suits in themselves are a very bad advert for the Soviet yeah. system. Um, supposedly, this is the moment when Putin resigned from the KGB. I mean, I say resigned. I mean, there's a question about whether he ever left the KGB. Um, but later in his sort of, uh, his sort of, you know, his, as it were, official biography, it was claimed that this was the point where he broke with communism, uh, Putin. But, but I mean, whether that's true, none of us can. To, to side with Yeltsin? Yes. Well we'll, well, we'll get into how Putin and Yeltsin form their relationship in the, in the next podcast. Um, but yes, it's, it's just impossible to say what Putin's position on all this is. I mean, my sense is But he's he, not there at the White House with no, 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 Yeltsin no. on the no. tank. Or I mean, he's, he's, not watching a, from a, he's watching from the distance. Yes, he is watching from a distance. So, okay, right. Gorbachev, the, the coup plotters lose their nerve. Gorbachev returns from the Crimea. And then we talked about the humiliation for Yeltsin. Now it's, it's his turn, his chance to turn the tables. And, um, you know, again, incredible that this was played out live on television. He basically... Um, gets Gorbachev to to a meeting of the Russian Supreme Soviet, uh, so so the, basically the government that Yeltsin controls, and he says, you know, lie in front. Of, he says, here's a list of all the people, your aides, your appointees who collaborated in the coup. Read it out, and he makes Gorbachev read it out in front of this audience. Terribly humiliating. And then Yeltsin just suddenly has the momentum. He bans the Communist Party in Russia. He says, we're going to move to a market economy, you know, immediately. We're going to have, you know, shock therapies looming. Nobody knows what that means at this point. But he says, you know, I have the economic sort of medicine that will fix the, the, what's gone wrong. alternative. Yes, very Thatcherite. Uh, but at the same time, this is the point when the various republics start to go their own way. So Yeltsin says, yeah, fine, let the Baltic states go. Um, the, the real question is Ukraine. So the leader in Ukraine, a man called Leonid Kravchuk, is the classic example of somebody 
who all his life has just been a complete apparatchik. And now see, you know, he doesn't want, he wants to hold on to his power. He wants to hold on to control with his mates of the state enterprises and stuff. And so he jumps onto the Ukrainian um, nationalist bandwagon. He declares Ukrainian sovereignty and he declares a referendum for the 1st of December, 1991. Um, why does he do this? The, the answer is, I think, because he he looks at those two people, Gorbachev and Yeltsin, and you think if Gorbachev wins, Gorbachev will will, will sort of, you know, uh, Kravchuk had, had equivocated during the, the coup. He thinks if Gorbachev wins, Gorbachev will, will basically, you know, it's not good for us. He'll mess with us and our system and our privileges and stuff and our control of all this stuff. If Yeltsin, you know, I don't want to be stuck with Yeltsin commandeering it for Russia and sort of, you know, him taking it over. So the best thing is basically we take it over ourselves and we'll control it ourselves. And I think a lot of the, so if you look at the first post-independence leaders in all those Soviet republics in Central Asia and so on, they're all the people generally who are running the Communist Party in those places before. And this, the same thing happens in Belarus, right? Exactly. And, and, and Yeltsin and the Belarus and uh, Ukrainian leaders all meet up in a in a wood hunting lodge. Yeah, in a forest. Yeah, <laughs> in the forest in uh, in Belarus. Yes. Yeah, so they go to um, a place called Belaveja. Um, as you know, Tom, I'm, I'm I've been to Belarus myself. Yes. Um, great admirer of its chocolate. So they meet up. And they basically, the, the leaders of these three republics behind Gorbachev's back, they sign a deal. They'll all become independent. They'll have a very loose association called the Commonwealth of Independent States. And, you know, that's it. Bang goes the Soviet Union. Nobody in the Soviet Union, by and large, well, 20% of the people in the Soviet Union want this. 80% do not want this. So this is not happening as a result of massive public protests. It's not happening because after years of you know, mounting sort of passions and, and, and street violence. It's happening largely because of rivalries and desire for self-protection among different parts of the, of the Soviet elite. Well, we talked about the collapse of the Roman Empire and the way that um, it, you know, in the West, in the fifth century, chunks of it start splitting off yeah. because uh, local bigwigs start to appreciate that they're likely to have more authority, more wealth, more position if they go independent. And you're essentially saying that much the same thing is happening in the Soviet it is, Union. I, it, is, it is actually a, re, a remarkably... It's I mean, kind of, course, of barons carving up territory. It is barons carving up territory. Interestingly, I was just reading this, this book today, the Zubot book, Collapse. He says uh, he has stuff in that that I'd not seen before. There are people around Yeltsin who say to him, that December 1991, you, are you just going to go and say yes to the Ukrainian guy? What about Crimea? What about Donbass? I mean, they literally say these places. And he says, oh, I'll pro I may mention it, yeah. And he doesn't mention it because he's just so keen to get one over on Gorbachev. And that's the reason, not because he's drunk. Well, there is a bit of drinking. <laughs> there, is, there definitely is a bit of drinking. And actually, at that meeting, I think there was some talk of Kelton having him carried out. Yeah. <laughs> Not having to be carried out, but yeah, it's easy to stereotype Yeltsin. I mean, Yeltsin is a is a tremendous politician as a as a populist, as a communicator and stuff. And he has had this sort of very stressful time, and he has been very brave. But you're right, there is the there is always the issue of the drink. He's so fixated, I think, on beating Gorbachev. So they get it's back. A, it's such an amazing psychodrama, and it's it I is mean, actually. Someone should write a you know do a film or a I know, play and about the, it. and the fate of you know hundreds yeah. of millions of people hangs on this they get back he gets they get back to moscow and they basically gorbachev's like what and they say yeah the soviet union is no more we've decided to leave and then of course everybody else 
decides to leave as well. And they say, oh, we'll join this new Commonwealth of Independent States. Um, and that's... Well, the cool kids have moved on. Basically, Gorbachev is there in the Kremlin. No one listens to him. The army have stopped listening to him. The interior ministry troops don't listen to him. The police yeah, don't listen like to him. It's like Romulus Augustulus. It is exactly that, Tom. We did this story on the 12 Days of Christmas podcast on the 25th of December, 1991. That's the day that Gorbachev resigns as president of the USSR, that the flag comes down, the hammer and sickness replaced by the Russian tricolor on the sort of Kremlin flagpole. That's the day the Soviet Union ends and the Russian Federation comes into existence. And we did this on our 12 Days of History podcast. But the worst thing about it is not actually the, the well-known fact that Gorbachev was filmed by American cameramen and he had to borrow a pen from the CNN producer to sign his a resignation. capitalist pen. A capitalist pen. There's actually a worse fact than, than that, which I didn't mention on that last podcast, which is that there's a ceremony where he basically hands over the nuclear briefcase to, um, to Boris Yeltsin or gives it to somebody to give to Yeltsin. But actually, in secret, they'd already switched the briefcases. So oh, Gorbachev right. thought at the end of that he was walking around with the nuclear briefcase, but he wasn't. It had been taken away from him behind his back already. God, and yeah. um, don't piss off the cool guys. And uh, yeah, so to go back to Putin, Putin is back in Russia. Um, he watches this with with horror. For him, as he later says, the collapse of the Soviet Union, he's called it the greatest geopolitical catastrophe of the century. And it is an extraordinary moment because at a stroke, the empire that had been inherited by the communists from the czars fragments. Um, the 15 yeah. republics go their own way. Suddenly, there is this nation state called Russia that has, that has 88 different federal subjects in it. So it has lots of Muslims. It has Chechens, Tatars, Tuvans, all kinds of people in the kind of um, in the in the steppes and the forests of the east. And suddenly, it's a nation state that feels like it's lost colossal amount of status, and also has lots of its citizens outside its borders. Lots of people who maybe either think they're Russian or yeah. or speak Russian. Exactly. Okay. Well, so what a dramatic moment! Um, the Soviet Union has come to an end. Russia has been born. Yeltsin has replaced Gorbachev. Putin is kind of swimming in the shallows like a a kind of baby shark waiting to taste a bit more blood. And uh, I think we should leave it there. And tomorrow's episode, we should see what happens under Yeltsin and how it is that Putin ends up becoming president. See you again tomorrow. Thanks very much. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. Thanks for listening to The Rest is History. For bonus episodes, early access, ad-free listening, and access to our chat community, please sign up at restishistorypod.com. That's restishistorypod.com. Hold up. 